Well, hello, everybody. A special welcome if you're joining us for the first time. And if that's you, amazing weekend to jump in. We're beginning a new series that we've called What is the Bible? And I have been working on the content for this series for over a year, and I cannot wait to unleash it upon you. Um, And if you've been around here, you know I always am excited to share. So that's kind of a given. Uh, But this series really, for me, takes things to another level. For the next five weeks, we're going to unpack a really great question. And just so we're all clear on what the question is, we decided to name the series the question. Yeah? So everybody knows what we're talking about. So basically, we're going after this question, what is the Bible? And it's a great question uh, for a bunch of us for different reasons. It's a great question for all of us who've ever been a bit confused while reading the Bible, which, if we're honest, is all of us. Uh, It's a great question if you've ever taken a break from church because of something you read in the Bible, something you had trouble squaring with the life that you were living or the life you were experiencing. And by the way, if that's you and you're back after some time away, great timing once again, and we're thrilled that you're with us. It's also a great question for all of us who've ever wondered if something in the Bible actually applied to us. I mean, if you read some of those Old Testament commands, they're a bit strange, um, and especially the one that forbids the eating of bacon, right? I mean, that's like a little suspect because if, if we, we all know the bacon is practically the perfect food, so I'm not sure what was going on there. We're going to talk about that. Um, finally, I think it's a great question, and maybe you've had this experience, where you've purchased a Bible for one of your children, and as you handed it to them, you secretly thought to yourself, good luck, because, I kind of like that one, right? Because you have always sort of struggled to know what to do with the Bible, and you know it's critical information. You want your kids to understand it and to know it and to love it, but, but there's just these questions that, that surface for you that you're like, I hope that they have a little more clarity than I do. And, and so I'm convinced that much of our confusion about the Bible actually stems from a powerful reality that you may have never thought about before, and it goes like this. Um, the way you got your Bible is not the way the world got the Bible. The way you got your Bible from an aunt, an uncle, a teacher at a graduation or whatever is not the same way the world got the Bible, and that's a big, big deal. See, when you got your Bible, it was already divided into chapters and verses. It had page numbers. There were maps attached. There were footnotes and cross-references. I mean, I remember the first time I held the Bible, I sort of had this thought that maybe it just descended from heaven on a ray of light bound in duotone leather, right? Which I actually Googled. It's genuine fake leather. That's what duotone leather is, but right? And maybe for you, you even had your name on the cover. And someone handed it to you, and they said something like this. This is God's word. It's all true, and it's all for you. So read it and try to live your life by it. And then they may have told you one other thing that my mom told me. Don't ever put anything on top of it, okay? Like a coffee cup or anything like that, because that would be disrespectful, right? Well, then if you were a firstborn compliant type like me, or maybe just genuinely curious, the day came where you actually opened the cover and started to read the Bible. And and if you're honest, it was a little confusing, especially if you made it through three or four books in the Old Testament, because though the Bible looks like a book, look like a lot of other books in our lives, it doesn't exactly read like a book. So what is the Bible? And just to be honest, none of these questions that come up with the Bible change the fact that the Bible is undoubtedly the most important book of all time. It's the best-selling book of all time. It, for thousands of years, has prescribed moral boundaries and influenced cultures. But again, what is it, 
and how did it come together? That's what I want to talk to you about today, or at least start to talk to you about today. Well, it may surprise you to learn that the story of the Bible doesn't actually begin in the beginning. The story of the Bible actually begins near the end of the middle. By the way, that's the title for today's talk. I'm very proud of that, okay? Some of you don't ever look at the titles, and that hurts my feelings because I spend a lot of time thinking about those titles. And sometimes I even share them with the other staff just to see what their response is, and they responded exactly like you just did. So we're just going to move on. So anyway, yeah, uh, the story of the Bible actually begins with a first century doctor by the name of Luke who investigated and documented the events of Jesus' life for his wealthy friend, Theophilus. And Theophilus is sort of a, a mysterious creature in the Bible. We know uh, he was a guy. Some believe he lived in Rome. One interesting footnote, his name, Theophilus, in Greek literally means God lover. But, but we know that Theophilus had come to a spot where he placed his faith in Jesus sometime during the first century, and he wanted to know more about what Jesus said and what Jesus did. And, and so Luke was commissioned by his friend Theophilus to thoroughly investigate the life and events surrounding Jesus. And fortunately for us, Luke's account of Jesus' life made its way into the New Testament of your Bibles. It's a document creatively titled, well, it's just called Luke, so there you go. Um, so they just settled for clarity on that one, but uh, you'd say Matthew begins the New Testament, and then Mark, and then Luke. And, and so uh, let me show you how Luke begins his account of Jesus' life. Here's what he says. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. So a lot of people are interested in documenting and understanding Jesus, what he said, what he taught, what he did. Just note with me that he uses the word many. And this is something, a detail that we in, the tw in our times just sort of fly over. But in the first century, this was very, very significant for a very easy reason. There weren't a lot of historians in the first century. So it's almost unprecedented in the ancient world to have multiple accounts of the same events. But in this case, in the case of Jesus, Luke says that many have undertaken to draw up an account, which says something to us. This was an incredibly significant thing that happened in the first century. So Luke says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. He continues, he says, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses. So Luke's like, I went back to the source, eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, no rock was left unturned, he says, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And if you have friends that you know, write you letters, you might suggest they put most excellent in front of your name too, because that just kind of sounds nice, right? Most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke says, I went back to the original sources because I want you to know that what you have been taught is true. And what you have placed your faith in, that foundation of faith on which you stand, it's strong. So that's what Luke writes at the beginning of his account of Jesus' life. That's his introduction. And at this point, it, it's worth noting something that is true, not only for Luke, but for all of the writers of the books of the Bible. And it goes like this. When Luke was writing, he didn't know he was writing a part of the Bible. And, and before you object, 
There was no Bible when Luke was writing this account. There were the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, but there was nothing like the Bible that we know. So when Luke was writing, he didn't know he was writing a part of the Bible. He was writing a letter to his friend. He couldn't fathom that 2,000 years later, there would be a book containing his research and that it would be set next to other accounts of the life of Jesus. Luke was simply creating an, uh, an orderly account of the events of his, Jesus' life based on the eyewitnesses to those events and others who were close to the action. And Luke, because of the way he did this, tells us why and how the story of Jesus or the story of the Bible actually began. When you read Luke's account, you come to realize that the reason we have a Bible at all today is something that happened 2,000 years ago. And it was an unprecedented something that nobody was expecting. As he unpacks the story of Jesus' life, Luke tells us that day before, days before this something happened, all of Jesus' closest followers unfollowed Jesus. And days before this something happened, nobody believed in Jesus anymore. And here's why. Throughout his time on earth, throughout his teaching, Jesus had claimed some incredibly significant things about himself. Uh, here's a list that I made uh, for our studies today. Uh, he claimed to be the Messiah, which is a Hebrew word that means anointed one. He was the one, he said, that God had sent to earth. He was the promised Messiah. He was the rescuer. And for first century Jews, they believed that God was sending the Messiah to restore Israel to prominence and prosperity on the world stage, to kick out the Roman occupiers and to once again allow Israel to be a self-governing nation. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. He also claimed to be, in a very unique way, the Son of God. And he authenticated and demonstrated this title through miraculous events over and over and over again. Jesus claimed to be the savior of the world. He even claimed to be the resurrection and the life. And so as the miracles flowed and as people flocked to Jesus, all of this energy around who he was and what he had come to do built. And so the day Jesus rides into Jerusalem, the last week of his life, riding on a donkey, and the people lined the streets with palm branches and they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means God save us. Jesus was, in their eyes, unstoppable. But then everything, everything changed. Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest friends. He was handed over to people who wanted to kill him. And he was arrested. And he was falsely accused. And he was tried. And he was convicted. And he was sentenced to death on a cross. And at that moment, his followers, his first followers who had left everything to follow Jesus, they ran for their lives. And to be clear, when Jesus died on the cross on that first Good Friday, nobody believed anything about him. They had hoped he was who he said he was. They even believed he was who he said he was. They believed he would ascend to the throne in Israel and they would be the inner circle to the most powerful man the planet had ever seen. But that first Good Friday when Jesus is hanging on a cross, they had nothing but questions. I mean, how can the savior of the world be murdered by the Roman Empire? It doesn't make any sense. How can someone who claimed to be the resurrection and the life be crucified? It's, it's inconceivable. When Jesus died on the cross, it was game over for his followers. And at that moment, and this is key, nobody 
planned to write anything about Jesus. At that moment, on that first Good Friday, no one planned to write anything about Jesus, but then something happened that changed everything. Luke tells us that an influential Jewish man named Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, took Jesus' body off the cross. So he had some influence, he had some wealth, he went to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and said, hey, I, I want to take care of the body of Jesus. And he did this uh, not because he believed Jesus was the savior of the world, but because he deeply respected Jesus and he believed Jesus deserved a proper burial. But without Joseph's intervention, Jesus' body would have been taken off the cross, piled onto a cart with other crucified bodies, taken to a garbage dump outside of the city of Jerusalem, and left out for the animals that's what would have happened, but that's not what happened. Luke describes it for us this way. He says, Then he, Joseph, took Jesus' body down and wrapped it in linen cloth and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. Luke continues. He says, the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee. So Jesus didn't just have 12 disciples. There were hundreds of people who were following Jesus, especially towards the end of his life, including this group of women who had taken the journey all the way from the Sea of Galilee to Jerusalem, uh, followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Check out this. Then they went home, and I love this, and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in accordance to the command. So as soon as sundown happens on Friday to sundown Saturday, the Jewish people uh, celebrate what they call the Sabbath. And the command in the Old Testament was that you do no work on the Sabbath. And so these women go and watch Joseph take care of Jesus' body, wrapping it in linen um, and, and kind of leaving it. And they're just watching. And then they go home and immediately prepare spices and perfumes. Uh, but they don't go back uh, right away because, of course, it's the Sabbath. Now, every girl in the room knows why they did that, if you think about it, right? Because they had watched a guy do it, and they knew that it had not been done properly. That's exactly what's going on there. And, and so, uh, but, but don't miss the fact that even the women who were planning to go back to the tomb after the Sabbath, nobody expected Jesus to be alive. Nobody expected anything but a dead body. Everyone expected Jesus to stay dead. Or as I, I've, I've said it before, and I love this, uh, in other words, nobody expected no body. Thank you. That's, I think that's a good one. Right. So there, there's like dad jokes and then there's pastor jokes. And I am just really bad because I have a dad pastor. So there you go. Okay. My kids groan all the time. Anyway. Uh, so in this moment, just to be clear, there were no Christians. There was no church. There was no hope. There were just broken-hearted women and disillusioned disciples who were afraid for their lives. Rome was still in control. The leaders of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem were still corrupt. And the Jesus movement, from everyone's perspective, had been crushed out of existence. And friends, if the story had ended there, there would be no Bible. There would be no account by a doctor named Luke exploring the life of Jesus. But as you know, that's not where the story ends. Because a few days later, everything changed. Which brings us to our big idea for today. And it goes like this. Luke documented the life of Jesus because of the resurrection of Jesus. Luke documented the life of Jesus because of the resurrection of Jesus. 
And moreover, without a resurrection, even beyond Luke's account, there would be no Bible. Now, once Jesus came back to life, his disciples hit the streets of Jerusalem, the same city where Jesus had been crucified. And they stood eye to eye with the same people who had actually crucified Jesus, and they confronted them with the reality of what they had done. Luke documents these conversations for us, including one between Jesus' disciple Peter and the high priest of the Jewish people, uh, who was basically the one who brought Jesus before Pilate and had him crucified. Here's what Peter says to the Jewish leadership. He says, God raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. And I can just imagine this was a very awkward moment for the Jewish high priest. Would you agree? Because Peter doesn't say we read that God raised him to life or that somebody told us that God raised him to life. I mean, great question. Uh, Peter, how in the world do you know that God raised Jesus to life? That just doesn't happen. And Peter said, oh, we saw him. We saw him, and um, we recommend that you say you're sorry. That's what he says in this, in this speech, and it's recorded for us in a book called Acts. So Luke goes on to document what happens for the 30 years following the resurrection. And this document made its way into the New Testament of your Bible. It's called Acts, or the actions of the first disciples. Acts was also written by Luke, and it was also addressed to Luke's friend, Theophilus. So he not only wanted to know the story of Jesus' life, he wanted to know the story of how the church got going. And so you should know that Luke knew Peter personally. Luke also knew John and Luke knew James. And Luke traveled with Paul all around the Mediterranean Rim, planting churches and documenting the explosive growth of the church. But all that to say, the reason that we have a Bible is because something extraordinary happened and the first followers of Jesus had to find a way to tell the world. And so a few of them sat down and recorded their experiences, what they saw and what they heard during their time with Jesus. Remember, uh, as Luke was beginning in his introduction, he said that many have set out to record the events of Jesus' life. Well, fortunately for us, a few of these many made their way into the New Testament of your Bible. I brought a table of contents slide. Uh, this is the New Testament. It begins with the accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. And then uh, Luke's second letter, Acts, which records the actions of the first disciples, comes next. Um, and then there are letters written by um, primarily a man named Paul to early Christians. Uh, and we'll get to those in a, in a future week. But just to notice that there are four accounts of Jesus' life. We've already talked about Luke. Uh, Matthew's account, uh, Matthew was one of the first followers of Jesus. Um, he had been a tax collector. And Matthew writes his account as a way to explain to the Jewish people that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And so it shouldn't surprise us that in Matthew's account, there's a whole bunch of references to the Old Testament and specifically to Old Testament prophecy because Matthew is trying to get his original audience to see that Jesus fulfills many of the Old Testament prophecies. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the Messiah. The second account, uh, Mark actually comes to us. This is Peter's recollections of Jesus. And scholars, uh, many have argued that Peter was illiterate. He was a fisherman before following Jesus. And so he realized that his memories had all sorts of value and he wanted to help people know. So he sat down with a man named John Mark uh, and basically dictated his account of Jesus' life. And we call that account the Gospel of Mark. And we could have called it the Gospel of 
John, but then we already have one of those too, so that didn't work, right? So finally, the New Testament contains this account called John, and, and John is fascinating. Once again, when John is writing his account, he's not thinking he's writing the Bible either. Uh, John was the youngest of the original 12 disciples of Jesus, so he ends up living the longest. So he approaches the year, you know, late 80s, early 90s, and he realizes his time on earth is coming to an end, and so he sits down to record what he experienced because he believes that it's absolutely critical for everyone to know what God had done for the world through the person of Jesus Christ. And in fact, at the end of John's account, he tells us why he wrote what he wrote. Here's what John, here's what John says. He says, Jesus, so he's just kind of got done explaining his record of Jesus' life. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. He's like, we were just scratching the surface. He says, which are not recorded in this book, but, but these, like what I gave you in my account of Jesus' life, these are written that you may believe. John said, the invitation that God has given the world is an invitation to believe. And so John wants to make sure that he could speak to future generations, including us, what he had seen, what he had heard, and what he had experienced, that it changed everything for him, and he believed could change everything for you. And he says, and he wants everyone to have a chance to believe, which, but that does raise an interesting question. Believe, believe what? Because it's a big deal for you and I, especially when you consider why sometimes people walk away from faith. So, so many will say something like this. I just don't believe it anymore. But what is the it that they don't believe? And John's about to tell us really the only it that matters at all. Here's, here's what he says, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, He's the anointed one. He's the promised one, the son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. By placing your faith in Jesus, what his death on the cross accomplished, that he bought peace with God for you, you might have life in his name. By the way, this is the same John that records for us the most famous verse in the Bible. You know the one you see it at end zones at football games, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, that's everybody, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, trusts in him to make them right with God, will not perish, will not be lost to God, but will have everlasting life. And to a first century Jew like John, everlasting life was a life that you accessed right now and that extended beyond the grave and into eternity. John had incredible clarity in writing. He had incredible purpose in writing. He wanted generations forward to understand what Jesus said, what Jesus did, and what Jesus means. And, and that's actually why that for generations, people have been directed to start reading the Bible, not in Genesis, but to start reading the Bible in the gospel of John. Gospel just means good news. So John's account of Jesus' life. That's where people have said that's where you start because it contains a record of the core events that launched the revolution of Jesus. And by the way, my challenge for you this week, you may have noticed on the program, is to read the gospel of John for yourself. I mean, seriously, like dust off the Bible at home. Your kids are gonna be like, what's that, right? You know, like, 
like that with the whole thing. That wasn't funny either. We're going to move on. Right, yeah. Or if you're more high tech, that's cool. You can actually read John's gospel online along with the rest of the Bible. There's websites you can Google. I love Bible Gateway, um, which again, if you Google it, it'll come right up. You can download an app if you're an app person. There's a free app called YouVersion that'll let you read it. And before you say, I don't have time, I did some checking. And literally, John's account of Jesus' life in my Bible is 22 pages long. I believe in you. You can do it, right? And if you are a super intense person, you might even get through it twice this week. But if you want to take that challenge, really, really simple, just spend some time this week, read what John says about Jesus. It's worth, it's worth your time. So Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. And that brings us to the end of the first century. And as the calendar turns to the year 100, there still is no Bible. But there are thousands of Christians and there are hundreds of copies of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John floating around the Mediterranean Rim. They've been meticulously copied and they've been bundled together. And just imagine how valuable these documents were to these early Christians who heard about Jesus and put their faith in Jesus and wondered what else did Jesus say and what else did he do? And just imagine you're in a little house somewhere around the Mediterranean with other people who've placed their faith in Jesus and one day someone walks in with a copy of the eyewitness accounts of what Jesus said and what Jesus did. It, It would have been Stunning, and, and that's why from the very beginning, these documents, they were considered sacred because they recorded, or they bore witness to the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So Christianity grows and Christianity spreads and, and it catches the attention of the Roman Empire, the global military superpower of the day, and not in a good way. Uh, Christians refused to declare that the Roman emperor, the Caesar, was their Lord. Uh, In the Christian thinking, they already had a Lord and it was Jesus, not Caesar. Moreover, the Christians refused to worship the Roman gods. They said, "We're we're not doing that. And so the Romans were very superstitious. And so when something went badly in the empire, they believed that the gods were mad at them. And they suspected that this growing number of Christians who did not recognize the existence of the gods might be the reason the gods were upset with them. And so Christians were repeatedly persecuted. Uh, consider, I, I found a quote from an early church leader named Tertullian, lived right around 200 AD. Here's what, here's what he writes, again, the relationship between the Roman Empire and Christians. He said, if the Tiber River floods the city, or if the Nile refuses to rise and water the crops, or if the sky withholds its rain, if there's an earthquake, a famine, pestilence, at once the cry is raised, Christians to the lions. You just get the sense that that Christians were a persecuted population within the Roman Empire. They were blamed for everything that went wrong. And this cycle of persecution culminated in the year 303 with a Roman emperor named Diocletian, who decided that he had had enough of the Christians. And so Diocletian issues an edict that every single church must be destroyed that the assembly of Christians was illegal, that church leaders needed to be rounded up and interrogated, and unless they refused to renounce their faith, declare Caesar as their Lord, and offer sacrifices to the Roman gods, they were to be killed. And all Christian literature, so Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and a bunch of those letters that had written, been written by Pat, Paul and others were to be rounded up, turned in, and burned. And anyone caught with Christian literature during this persecution lost their lives. 
And so what historians tell us is that hundreds of Christians risked their lives and lost their lives protecting copies of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. In other words, the reason the Christian documents survived the fourth century was because of the confidence of early Christians who believed that something had happened in the first century on planet Earth and that these documents bore reliable witness to those events. And they would rather give up their lives than give up these sacred documents so that people like you and I in generations forward could have confidence in what we read. Amazingly, during this persecution, Christianity continued to grow. And then the storyline changes again in the year 324. Reform came to the Roman Empire, and a man named Constantine, or Constantine the Great, canceled the edicts and returned property to the church. He allowed Christians to worship freely and made Christianity the preferred religion of the Roman Empire. And perhaps even more significantly, Christian scholars were now able to work in the open. And for the first time, they were able to bring together the documents of the New Testament. It really was an unprecedented moment in human history. And it was an unprecedented moment in the history of the Bible. And it's where we'll pick up the story next week. But for today, I just want to leave you with the incredible reality that without a resurrection, without an empty tomb, without those eyewitnesses coming face to face with the resurrected Jesus, friends, there would be no Bible. Would you stand? And I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, in, in a moment like this, it feels, it feels right just to say thank you Thank you for sending Jesus among us. Thank you for the urgency of those first eyewitnesses to record what they had seen and what they had heard. Thank you for the courage of Christians hundreds of years ago who risked their lives so that we might have reliable witnesses to your son's life and death and resurrection. I pray that for all of us, this would give us confidence in what we read and in what we believe. And as we engage the story together this week, I pray that you would open our eyes once again to how deeply you love us, that you would send your one and only son to rescue us, and that we might once again affirm our trust and our faith and our belief in Jesus. And so we bless you, we thank you. In his name, the name of Jesus, the name above all names, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Friends, go in peace. We'll see you next week for part two of What is the Bible?